The following is my conversation with Russell Foster, a professor of circadian neuroscience and the head of the Department of Ophthalmology. He's also a Nicholas Curti Senior Fellow at Brent's Nose College. Prior to this, Russell was at Imperial College where Russell was Chair of Molecular Neuroscience within the Faculty of Medicine. Russell Foster's research spans basic and applied circadian and photoreceptor biology. He received his education at the University of Bristol under the supervision of Professor Sir Brian Follett from 1988 to 1995. He was a member of the National Science Foundation Center for Biological Rhythms at the University of Virginia and worked closely with Michael Menneker in 1995. He returned to the UK and established his group at Imperial College for his discovery of non-rod, non-cone ocular photoreceptors. He has been awarded the Honma Prize in Japan, Konga Award at USA, and Zoological Science Scientific and Edric Green Medals at UK. He is the co-author of Rhythms of Life, a popular science book on circadian rhythms. Hi, Russell, how are you? I'm extremely well here. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for coming. I just want to start with something very basic for people who don't have an idea of your work. Can you explain in layman's term what circadian neuroscience is and why it is important for understanding of biology? <laughs> Absolutely. So uh, a, a brief praise of, of what I've been doing for the past 40 odd years or so. So it, I think it's truly extraordinary that we all have an internal biological representation of a day. We have an internal clock. And these are called circadian rhythms. Why do we have them? Well, if you think about it, what we have to do, what our biology has to do is deliver the right stuff at the right concentration to the right tissues and organs at the right time of day. And it's the circadian system that provides this extraordinary adaptive response to the varying demands of the light dark cycle and the revolution of the earth uh, uh, every 24 hours upon its axis. So it essentially fine tunes our physiology and behavior to these varied yet predictable demands of activity and rest, sleep, wake, and all of the other things that we, that we have to do. So, so for example, in anticipation of waking up in the morning, our core body temperature is rising, our metabolism is rising, our mobilization of glucose, the release of cortisol, for example, is all happening actually before we wake up. So that when we wake up, we're physiologically adapted to be active. And, and of course, the other end of the day, we wind down, there's a drop in core body temperature, and we get um, ready for the sleep state, which of course is not um, a, a period of, 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 of inactivity within the brain. Huge amounts of stuff is going on. It, we're physically inactive, but we're doing memory consolidation. We're processing information. We're coming up with innovative solutions to to to. To, uh, to, to problems that we may have been thinking about during the day, and the body is doing a whole mass of other stuff um, uh, to, to prepare us for the next day of activity. And why do you think this is important? I mean, the body is doing this, but like we seem to be working in evolutionarily, like, yes, it made sense. A lot of people would say, my lifestyle is completely different. I'm a night owl and I stay up yeah. all night and I'm sleeping through the day. How does the circadian rhythm adapt to that, or does it is it not going to? What does that look like? Well, Niha, you, you raise an extremely important point, which is that we are all very different. If we think about our body clocks and the sleep-wake cycle, 
it's like shoe size. One size does not fit all. And uh, there are morning types and there are evening types, and that's called the chronotype. And if we just think about chronotype a little bit, so there are three things contribute to whether you're a morning person or an evening person. The first is one's genetics. We actually have identified key changes in some of the, the clock genes which predispose you to be a morning or an evening type. So, so by, by their contribution to our genes, our parents are still telling us what time to get up and what time to go to bed. The second is our age. And so from about the age of 10, there's a tendency to want to go to bed later and later and later. And that peaks in women at about 19 and a half, in men about 21. And from that late teens, early 20s, then there's a very slow move to want to go to bed earlier and earlier. So the point is, by the time we're in our late 50s, early 60s, we're wanting to go to bed about two hours earlier than we did in our late teens, early 20s. So there's a there's a biological difference. And that sharp rise from 10 to the teens to the early 20s, and then the slow change into, into uh, a, a older age is almost certainly due to the changing um, uh, hormones associated with puberty and reproduction. So estrogen, progesterone in women, testosterone in men. Um, and and, and, and those, those hormones follow very nicely that time course. So we've got genetics, we've got hormonal changes. The third factor is something we have some influence over, and that's when we see light. Light, of course, is incredibly important for setting the internal day uh, to the external world. So the internal clock is set to the external world, and it's the light-dark cycle that does that. The classic mismatch between the internal day and the external world is jet lag, and we get over jet lag primarily by exposure to light in the new time zone. But the thing is, morning light advances the clock, makes you get up earlier and go to bed earlier, whereas dusk light delays the clock, you go to bed later and get up later. So if we're, when we're all agricultural workers, we were seeing a symmetrical dawn-dusk cycle. So we sort of stayed about on cue. But we did a study on university students around the world a few years ago, showing that the later the chronotype, the more owl-like you were, the less morning light you got and the more dusk-like you got. So you're getting that delaying light, but you're missing out on the advancing light. So when you see light, your genetics and how old you are will all influence your morning versus evening chronotype. So that's a really important issue. Um, and, and as I say, we do have some control over it. And, and so if you're a late, late type, but you need to get up early for work, then you set the alarm clock, you go outside if it's light or you sit in front of a light box, you get that morning dose of light and it will make it easier <clears throat> to get up the next day. But you have to keep on dosing yourself with that morning light. And does the body adapt over time to like if you're I'm conditioning myself, like imagine I'm a shift worker and I need to be up all night. There is no option that I have. No. And, and we should talk about what we can do there. Basically, you can't adapt to the night shift. Um, and studies have been done on night shift workers showing that 97% of long-term night shift workers never adapt to the demands of working at night. And I remember um, having a chat to the head of the um, Confederation of British Industry uh, many years ago now. And they said, oh, well, um, we can 
cure some of the problems of British industry by running it on a 24-7 basis. No need to build more offices. We'll just use them around the clock. There won't be the rush hour that we had. And he was a, you know, a well-meaning bright man, um, but had no idea of the biological consequences. So the key thing is we do adapt when we fly across multiple time zones. Why don't we adapt to the demands of working at night? And it goes back to light again. So we're under relatively dim light in the workplace at night. But then we experience bright natural light during the day and the clock will always defer to the brighter light as being daytime. And so you don't shift. Now, studies have been done which have taken night shift workers, increased the amount of light in the workplace to 2000 lux. And lux is a, is, is a measure of brightness. And you can buy a, a simple lux meter online. Or you, you might want to try it because it's really quite fascinating to, to explore how much light we are exposed to or not. So they increase the amount of light in the workplace and then hid these people from natural light during the day. And just like getting over jet lag, they adapted to working at night. But for most practical purposes, that isn't really an option. There's one group that was studied by Josephina Rent, who was a, a pioneer in the field and very sadly died last year. And she did some studies on um, some workers on the oil rigs in the North Sea. And she showed that they did adapt to the demands of night shift work. And that's because during the day they were sleeping in windowless metal boxes, mm. um, whilst during the, the night they were out under the great big arc lights uh, on the rig. And of course, then they go on to shore leave and they complain bitterly because they were then adapted to the night shift and they weren't able to interact optimally with their family and their friends. So. Yeah, it, it, for all practical purposes, uh, it, it, we, we, you can't adapt. But I think it raises a very important point, Neha, which is the, that the 24-7 society is not going to go away. It would be utterly naive to say we can't, you shouldn't do night shift work. Our hospitals, our police, our fire crews, um, everything depends upon a 24-7 society. But I do feel we're missing a trick uh, because there is lots we could do now to mitigate some of the problems of night shift work. Um, so, for example, um, if uh, after the night shift, I don't, don't know if you've experienced this, you're driving, driving home, you feel tired. And those studies have been done on junior doctors in the UK and shown that 57 percent had either had a crash or a near miss driving home after the night shift. So, so, of course, many cars now are being built with these detectors, which detect if your head is nodding or if the car is moving laterally. But for those who don't have those detectors in the car, you can put an app on the phone and that can be used. Very simple sorts of things like that. Knowing that night shift workers have poor physical health, high rates of diabetes 2, obesity, depression, coronary heart disease. Those vulnerable individuals need to have higher frequency health checks to detect these issues before they become chronic. Classic one would be diabetes too. What's your glucose level like now? And do you need to take some, some corrective measures? Again, what type of, you know, the illnesses of obesity, type two diabetes, metabolic abnormalities, what type of food is available for our night shift workers? Well, it's fast food, high fat, high sugar, vending machines full of, full of chocolate bars. We should easily, um, we could easily develop high protein um, snacks, which are easy to digest to help people, you know, through the night. The divorce rate <clears throat> for night shift workers 
in some sectors is six times higher than day shift workers. We need to provide education. <clears throat> Sorry, we need to provide education, not only for the worker to, to, to explain what might happen to their health, but also to the people they share their lives with, explaining that this person hasn't turned into a monster. But if you're driving your biology outside of its normal range, then you're going to be less empathetic, you're going to be moodier, you're going to be more anxious, you're not going to be that loving, kind partner that you, <laughs> that you may have married in the first place. And so I think so, so those sorts of things. Um, and, and, and I think there's also a very important point that these pathologies that we've touched on, and we can dig into those in, in more detail later, um, develop over time. So, so should it be that night shift work should be confined to four or five years, you then cycle out for four or five years, and then you go back. We don't know if that will work or not, but I think it's something that we need to try. So I think there's lots of things we can do now. And in fact, in, in the book I wrote, um, Lifetime, I was very keen not to sort of say, oh, doom and gloom and, you know, we're all going to hell in a handcart. There's stuff that we can do now. And I think it was it's very important to to recognize we're going to have a 24 seven society. What can we do about it? And what's the duty of care of an employer to their employees? And, and I think there's a, a really important discussion that governments, employers uh, and, and employees all need to have. Something that you touched upon was shift workers and their concentration and then them nodding yeah. off while they're driving. That's their cars that have sensors. Okay, that's some technologies that's available. But what about surgeons who are like doing open heart surgery in the middle of the night? And this is an emergency emergency situation. They're exhausted. Yeah. They're working long hours and someone's life is on the line. What yeah. what would one do being like one wanting to take responsibility and making sure that like, you know, nothing is missed out? Uh, yeah. to like mitigate something like that. You don't have sensors where doctors are like literally performing heart surgery. Yeah, no, I think it's again a really good point. So there's a, a, there's a couple of things there, which is the shift work schedules for our, our clinicians, our surgeons. And I think if you don't have to operate uh, in the early hours of the morning, then you shouldn't. And, and it's been shown that long shifts versus short shifts um, uh, long shifts lead to greater medical errors and greater problems. So, so that's the first point. Um, just thinking you can schedule operations to get down the waiting lists across the 24-hour day is not um, a sensible strategy. Uh, however, of course, there are emergency situations where surgeons need to come in and operate or, or whatever. Uh, so, so after a car accident or something like that. And there you just have to use short-term stimulants. Caffeine is very effective as a short-term stimulant, but also individuals need to be not arrogant. They need to know that they are more likely to make mistakes. They're going to um, be more impulsive. They're going to uh, risk take to a far greater extent. Um, and so you need ideally more than one surgeon there so that they can cross check. I mean, even if it's just giving the amount of drug that you need at the right level, those are the sorts of things that you, two people can cross check each other. So if you have to do these sorts of procedures in the early hours of the morning, then 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 having backup to check that you're not making mistakes, mistakes, I think, is so very important. Could you delve a little bit deeper into the mechanisms of which non-rod, non-cone ocular uh, photoreceptors function and how they contribute to the regulation of the circadian rhythm? We've been talking about light 
and seeing yes. that but like how does this connect well this is something that i've been working on for a very long time now and um i sort of got into this because i my first degree interestingly enough was in zoology and i had these fantastic lectures from a, a man called john lithgow and he wrote this book called The Ecology of Vision. And it was all about the way sensory systems are adapted for their particular sensory task. Now, I, it's kind of obvious when you say that. But, but if you think about the visual system that we understood and had described for 150 years, um, what it's evolved to do is detect light and then forget it's seen it in a fraction of a second. So it's building an incredibly intense snapshot of the light environment. Now, what the clock needs is a measure of the overall amount of light over relatively long periods of time, over dawn and dusk, to set the clock to the internal day. So it needs relatively bright light. It needs light over relatively long duration to function. And... What I couldn't understand way back now, frighteningly a long time ago, um, is how can the visual system, the classical visual system, which is a, taking a snapshot of the light environment, also act as a brightness detector over long periods of time? Now, this led to us to use mice with hereditary retinal disorders, mice in which the rods and cones, the visual cells, had broken down as a result of genetic disease, and they were being studied to understand human eye disease. And we um, brought some of those, those mouse models into the lab, and they were visually blind. Um, they had their eyes, but they were visually blind. They'd lost most of their rods and cones. And yet their ability to regulate their clock to the light-dark cycle was entirely unaffected. It wasn't that they had some residual capacity they did it with the same sensitivities as normal mice. And that led us to think, well, maybe there's another light sensor within the eye. And anyway, I was at a big meeting in the States and I said, you know, so these data are, are con you know, consistent with the fact that there may be a third non-rod, non-cone photoreceptor within the eye. And I remember one chap stood up, um, shouted bullshit, and then walked out. Um, there was huge and intense op opposition to this idea. And, and it was based upon, I think it's, you know, the, the scientific establishment is fantastic in lots of ways, but it doesn't, it doesn't react to change very effectively or, or indeed no ideas. Mm. And, and they, you know, one argument I remember saying, uh, somebody saying to me, look, we've studied the eye for 150 years. Are you seriously telling us, young Foster, that we've missed an entire class of light sensor? Um, and um, I sort of was young and arrogant enough to say yes. Um, but the problem with those early experiments is that not all of the rods and the cones had been eliminated. And the argument remained, well, maybe you just need a few rods and cones left to regulate your clock normally by light. So what we then did was genetically engineer a mouse. Uh, in fact, we made several models where all of the rods and all of the cones had been completely uh, knocked out. And under those circumstances, the mice showed perfectly normal circadian responses to light. It was one of those fantastic moments in a career. There had to be another receptor, because if you covered the eyes, this ability to run, respond to light had gone. Mm -hmm. And that led to the, to the discovery that there's this 
third light sensor within the eye. And it's based upon the ganglion cells. So the ganglion cells in the retina are those, those, those sort of the, the, the last layer of the retina, and they send all their projections, their axons, into the brain, and that's the optic nerve. And about one out of every hundred of those ganglion cells is directly light sensitive using a, a novel light sensitive molecule, a novel photopigment. And so the eye, it, it, it was one of those fantastic sort of revelations. The eye is an organ of sight, but it's also the organ of time because its ability to regulate the internal clock. And so the eye has this wonderful dual function. And that's led, of course, to um, a, a, you know, a, a reappraisal of what blindness actually means within the, the clinic, within departments of ophthalmology. If you've lost your visual cells, there's been a tendency to say, well, your eye is no use to you, you're blind, it could be a source of infection, and it may just be simpler to take it out and put a prosthetic in. And what you might do unwittingly is then remove an eye, which providing you a sense of time, detecting the light-dark yeah. cycle. So it's changed the way we think about blindness in the clinic as well. So yeah, um, it's been, a, and, and now of course, what we're doing is, is working on the signaling pathways whereby those photosensitive retinal ganglion cells are actually interacting with the molecular clockwork, with the master clock, the circadian clock within the brain. And what would be the adaptation, like, you know, scientifically as a clinician as well, for someone who is, suffers from insomnia or has uh, like, you know, issues with their circadian clock? If there is like, cause I know now we understand it, but how do we modulate it in such a way that we can use it for our advantage? Yeah, there's a, there's a couple of important areas there. Um, one is that many clinical conditions are associated with sleep-wake disruption. Um, so for example, in depression um, and indeed in conditions like bipolar and schizophrenia, there's quite a lot of circadian disruption. Uh, and so regular exposure to the light-dark cycle can help consolidate those sleep-wake cycles. And, and it was really interesting. We did some work on individuals with the diagnosis of schizophrenia a few years ago now, and you saw just incredibly disrupted, I mean, really disrupted rhythms, whereby these individuals were sleeping during the day when they weren't getting light, but awake at night, and it was utterly disrupted. And what we're, we're now working with psychiatry and trying to develop protocols where regular light exposure can be used to consolidate the sleep-wake uh, profile. Now, why is that important? Well, of course, it's important for the social interaction of these individuals. But what we've also shown is that even partial consolidation of the sleep-wake cycle can lead to a reduction in the severity of psychiatric symptoms. So for example, um, we studied, and, and this was Dan Freeman who led this study in psychiatry, um, individuals showing sleep-wake disruption. So they had classical insomnia, but they also had paranoia and hallucinatory experiences. And after a period of sleep-wake stabilization, regular exposure to the light-dark cycle, those individuals reduced their levels of paranoia and hallucinatory experiences, showing that we can think of the circadian and sleep-wake systems as a therapeutic target in mental health. Um, that's one area, for mm. example. So I'm not like an evil scientist or whatever, but wouldn't it be also something that like, if again, going back to the shift workers or someone with a disrupted sleep cycle, could develop symptoms like depression, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder because of it. And well, it takes years to like, you know, manifest 
obviously, because these are serious conditions. And most people wouldn't even recognize it mm. until, like, you know, the final signs are clear. Well, I think this is a, a really important point. And, and we know that sleep weight disruption is associated in lots of studies now with um, increased psychiatric symptoms and depression. Um, interestingly, a change in the pattern of sleep often precedes uh, recurrent bouts of depression. So you can use a change in the sleep pattern as an early warning of, of, of impending depression and potentially psychiatric illness. And I've often had the fantasy that you could have a simple rest activity device on your wrist, um, which would uh, report via satellite technology to the hospital, and you'd have somebody looking at sleep weight patterns in individuals in their you know, normal home environment. But if there's a change in the pattern, you can then ring them up and say, you okay? Do you want to come in? Should we discuss? So this is a way of making sure people are okay in their normal home environment without the need to hospitalize and all the rest of it. Now the technology is there and it's, a, it's, it's simple. I don't understand why nobody's actually done it so that we can keep a light touch uh, on individuals who are vulnerable to developing uh, mental health problems. I mean, I think the the aura ring kind of tracks your sleep cycle anyway. It's just, I think, uh, taking ownership of your own health and just keeping a track of how you're sleeping might just help. Yes, I think that's true. And certainly stable sleep-wake um, is very important. Uh, while we're talking about tracking devices, I, I think they can be very useful in the sense that if you want to lose weight, you weigh yourself on the scales every morning and you see that your changed behavior has led to a weight loss and that reinforces the changed behavior. Yeah. And in the same way, you could change your sleep-wake uh, behavior and see the next day that you've actually had longer sleep or a different time of sleep or whatever. That's great. But the problem is many of these devices also try and calculate REM sleep and, and slow wave sleep and all these other things. And they're really quite inaccurate. None of these apps have been endorsed by uh, the sleep federations and none of them are FDA approved. So they're fine, but don't take them too seriously. I mean, I've had people come up to me in public talk after public talks incredibly anxious because their sleep app has said you're not getting any slow wave sleep and of course this is nonsense um and so uh yeah i think you're right they can be useful but 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 don't take them too seriously makes sense uh you mentioned in the past about genetic disorders related to circadian rhythms can you yeah. discuss some of the common genetic disorders affecting circadian rhythms and how they manifest in individuals so this is not depression and like, you know, stuff that's manifest yeah, yeah. because, yeah. Yeah, uh, well, it's, it, there's some very nice studies over the past, I suppose now approaching 20 years. Um, so we've, we've, we understand the molecular basis of the clock, which I think is incredible. And at its fundamental level, you've got a bunch of clock genes, which are turned on, they produce clock proteins, those proteins move into the nucleus, turn off their own genes, and then those proteins degrade. And so the genes can then uh, be turned on again and you get this cycle of protein production and degradation. And that's an oscillation of about 24 hours. Now, it's complicated. And what we do know is that subtle changes in some of those clock genes can be linked to morningness and eveningness. One of the first to be described was familial advanced sleep phase syndrome. 
those individuals wanted to go to bed at around about seven o'clock in the evening and were getting up at three or four o'clock in the morning. So their whole sleep-wake cycle had advanced in time. Now, what is truly extraordinary is that was due to one tiny change, one amino acid change in one of the clock proteins, which meant that the clock went a bit faster. And so they went to bed earlier and got up earlier. Uh, and so we can now link directly subtle changes, polymorphisms in these in these genes with different patterns of, of sleep-wake. It, it, is, it is remarkable, actually. Um, we're also finding changes in some of the genes associated with sleep. So, for example, sleep-wake timing not only depends upon the clock, but what's called sleep pressure. And that's the intuitive part of, of, of sleep, if you like, which is the longer you've been awake, the greater the, the sleep pressure, the greater the need for sleep. And part of that sleep pressure is encoded by rising levels of adenosine within the brain. And there are adenosine receptors. And some people have different types of these receptors. And they can make you more or less sensitive to sleep pressure. So if you're less sensitive to sleep pressure, you can stay awake much longer than somebody who's very um, sensitive to sleep pressure. So we're beginning to understand the genetic basis for sleep-wake timing. Incidentally, of course, what coffee does is block adenosine receptors so you don't detect the sleep pressure. This is why a, a cup of coffee will genuinely make you less sleepy because you're blocking uh, part of the mechanism which is responding to sleep pressure, the fact that you've been awake. How about those people who have coffee and then go to sleep? I know a lot of people yeah. who like, it doesn't bother me. I can have it like at 11 uh, p.m. and then I'll be knocked out in five minutes. I, know I it's, don't get it. <laughs> no, it's interesting. There's, there's a couple of things there. If you have a very high sleep pressure, so if you're really tired, then that will overwhelm the effects of coffee. But as you point out, it's a great illustration of the fact there's variation across the population in one's sensitivity to coffee. And so, um, yeah, uh, th th that would be that would be part of part of the explanation. So you are either chronically tired and it overwhelms any uh, effect of coffee or you just have a, a subtle change in those those receptors. And what does the future look like? What are the most pressing unanswered questions in circadian neuroscience and what direction do you see, see the field moving forward? Uh, can you talk about like, you know, work that you're working on specifically right now that's super exciting for anyone who's interested and who wants to like, you know, keep up with what's happening? Yeah, I, I mean, I guess there's a there's a, a lot of stuff going on at the moment. Um, one thing that I think is interesting is that the master clock within the brain is called the suprachiasmatic nuclei. It's a paired structure. In humans, it's about 50,000 cells. It's incredibly complicated. There are lots of cells doing different sorts of things. And we don't understand how that relatively small cluster of cells is responding to light specifically. How, for example, how the sleep systems and the clock systems talk to each other. So, for example, if you have if you're sleep deprived, then actually the clock is less sensitive to light. How the heck is that happening? So there's so there's this these levels of complexity which are which are emerging, which we can now begin to discuss. So for example, we know that women get over jet lag faster than men. That's true for humans and for mice, which is amazing. 
And it looks like, and it's something we're working on at the moment, that estrogen receptors within the master clock are modulating the effects of light on the clock, which mm. I think is so cool. So, so we're interested in sort of trying to understand the master clock at a cellular and subcellular level. But the project that's been going on for now quite some time is we talked about those extraordinary photosensitive retinal ganglion cells. But what are they doing? OK, they're sending messages to the master clock and they're interacting with the molecular clockwork. What's the signaling pathway? And we've worked out in some exquisite detail what that pathway is. And where that's taken us is to the development of drugs that will mimic the effects of light on the clock. And why do we want to do that? Well, I think this is this is an example where fundamental research is being translated to the clinic. So I work with individuals who have lost their eyes. This is a Blind Veterans UK. So they've lost their eyes as a result of trauma or indeed eye disease, and they're looked after by this charity. And when they've got radical damage to the eye or they've lost their eye, then in a sense, they can't lock the internal day onto the external world. So they essentially suffer in, you know, um, never ending jet lag for the rest of their lives. It is truly dreadful if you think about it. They've lost their sense of sight, um, their image of the world, but they've also lost their sense of time because they can no longer regulate the clock. So we've developed a drug which is which has gone all through the preclinical work. It's been uh, designated as an orphan or, uh, as an orphan drug, so it, that's fantastic. We've done our first in human trials, showing it's safe, and now we're ready to take this drug to the clinic. So we're we're currently um, uh, looking for funding to to to, we've, uh, to 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 get our first clinical trial off the ground, and I think that's amazing. If I can finish my career by giving back a sense of time to the time blind, I will be over the moon. But I think these drugs also will have huge application. We talked about um, the sleep-wake disruption you get in severe mental illness. And I can see that um, what you might do is use this drug to stabilize the sleep-wake and then move people on to a regular light-dark cycle. So you could act to stabilize it. Um, in certain neurodevelopmental conditions, for in children, for example, the sleep-wake cycle is absolutely destroyed. And it not only affects the educational performance and opportunities of those, those children, but also it impacts hugely on the entire family who are often, you know, sleep disrupted because the, the child is sleep disrupted. So I could see us using those drugs to stabilize sleep-wake in that particular group. In Alzheimer's and dementia, you get um, very bad sleep disruption. And in fact, the decision point to put a family member into, um, into some sort of um, care, nursing care, is because they're waking up in the middle of the night and waking everybody else up. Now, if you could stabilize their sleep-wake, they could remain within the home longer. That's less of an emotional um, uh, impact upon the family and the individual, and of course, pragmatically, less of a finan financial impact upon the family or indeed the state. So, I mean, we're immensely excited by this, this new class of drugs. We've got another drug, which is not as far advanced, but what it does is increase the amplitude of the circadian clock. Now, one of the things as you age, this amplitude decreases. So, you know, you're not producing that beautiful timed release of hormones in the same way that you were. So for example, the hormones underpinning urine production, which, you know, high urine production during the day, low at night that that has become a bit flattened and so one of the great complaints of many people in old age is 
I have to get up in the middle of the night and pee. Um, and so if we could increase the amplitude of the clock, we could then naturally restore some of those um, circadian rhythms that are underpinning the different demands of rest and activity. So, yeah, it's an exciting time. And I, I, as I say, I think it's, you know, I went into this area because I wanted to understand the fundamental mechanisms whereby sleep circadian rhythms are generated and particularly how they're regulated. And now we got to the stage where we can translate this fundamental information to the clinic. And has there been any work or research done with, especially with moms? I have two friends who've just had kids, like small babies. Yeah. And they is like, since I've had the kid, I have not slept. It's been difficult. No, Every three, I'm, four hours they're up, they're breastfeeding yeah. or the kid is crying. That, I, I think yes. I think that's a very important point, Nia. And and it, and it raises a sort of a, a social issue. Um, and so many young mothers um, feel that they are they're, they're, they can't cope. They're, 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 they're not being a good mother because they're chronically tired. And, and it's really important to emphasize that family life has changed fundamentally in recent years. We've gone from the extended family I mean, I'm not that old, but my grandparents were very much involved, you know, when I was being brought up and they were around um, from the to a nuclear family with increased wealth. You know, a, a, a couple will live on their own in their own house. And so childcare has gone from the extended family, the grandmothers, the aunts, the sisters to just the couple and usually just the mother. And we've never evolved. If you look across the primates, Childcare is distributed across different individuals. And so my advice is, you know, before uh, a, a young child comes into the family, um, you need to have a support network. First of all, you need to understand that you can't cope. You do need to reach out for help and you, 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 you shouldn't be ashamed of that. And second is you need to have an extended network and say, uh, call them up and say, look, I need a couple of hours of sleep. Can you pop over and just help me, you know, look after the, the, the baby for a couple of hours? And and I think that extended network um, is so important. And 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 we need to emphasize to, to young mums that they're not failing. They they and they should not feel at all guilty for feeling tired. It it is it is a problem. I mean, the, the sleep wake cycle of young children isn't fully consolidated for at least six months. And so, um, yeah, it's going to be a problem and you need to recognize that problem and not be afraid to ask for help. Is there any connection to the sleep-wake cycle and postpartum depression? Well, yes, I think there are issues. It's probably related to the big changes in estrogen and progesterone. And, and of course, there are changes in mood across the menstrual cycle. So again, the circadian system is very important in the timed release of the hormones associated with the menstrual cycle. Um, and of course, this is why um, uh, air crew, female air crew, often have disrupted menstrual cycles and have a higher risk of miscarriage because of the circadian disruption underpinning the hormonal cycles of reproduction. So with estrogen rising um, and then leading to ovulation, mood improves. Um, and uh, and then when estrogen declines and progesterone rises, again, you reduce anxiety. So mid-cycle, mood and sleep is invariably good. But prior to menses and immediately after menses, when those hormones are low, 
mood is often low and so there's the classic um uh premenstrual tension and 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 menstrual depression and mood changes and so those hormones also seem to be very important in some of the mood changes seen postpartum that you know high levels uh, that, that that were sustaining the the the, the fetus you know the progesterone being produced by the placenta those crash after birth and so it's those big changes in hormonal levels that can lead to mood changes again it's entirely normal um and it's and it's not something that people need to feel guilty about they should talk about it and they should they should seek help where if it's affecting them what are the ethical considerations in regards to research in this field? Like I understand like, you know, when someone is coming in as a blind patient who's struggling or like someone has depression, but yeah. what are the other things where we start tweaking so much that it's not, it, we've gone too far? I think there are some very important issues and I think there's some poor advice out there. Um, and one of the reasons I wrote my book, Lifetime, was to deal with the sort of sergeant majors of sleep, screaming, you must get eight hours. Um, and and that caused a huge amount of anxiety. You know, we, we sleep is like two size, one size does not fit all, you know, um, and you need to work out what works for you. And so um, I think there's there's misinformation out there and some really quite unhelpful, um, uh, I think, Scientific comments, along with the press, have have you know. So, for example, you know, people have said you shouldn't read a Kindle before you go to bed, um, and uh, because it will disrupt your sleep. But if you look at the study, well, after looking at a Kindle on its brightest intensity for four hours, on five consecutive nights, it delayed sleep onset just statistically significantly by ten minutes. So that may be significant, but it's it's biologically meaningless and later experiments showed that if you keep people under relatively bright light during the day the sort of thing we'd easily encounter during the day then that sensitivity to dim light in the evening is abolished so you know it, people who were getting great comfort by looking at a kindle to read their bedtime story or whatever were then terrified of doing that and became anxious and then found it more difficult to get off to sleep so there's there's lots of misinformation out there, and I do think we need to be um, less dogmatic um, about sleep. It's highly dynamic. It changes. We are the best people to, to know whether we're getting good sleep or not. And most people don't have a sleep problem. They have an anxiety um, or a stress issue about sleep. I know a few people who have the TV on and they go to sleep. If the TV yeah. switches off, they wake up. Either yeah. light, it's like the so soft humming of the TV on the side. Mm -hmm. That does that affect sleep quality? Well, there's slightly mixed views on this. I, I, I guess pragmatically, I'd say if it helps people get off to sleep and they stay asleep, it's like white noise generation or all these other noise generation systems. Some people like to have music at a very low level in the background. That's fine. So I don't I don't know of any data suggesting that's bad except for some ideas that if the brain, if the sensory system is not completely turned off at night, it's more difficult to process information and lay and, 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 and lay down memory consolidation. Because what the brain is doing at night is 
It doesn't have to deal with all this information flowing in. It's dealt with that, and now it's parked that information, and now it's processing it. So if you're creeping in a bit of information at night, sorry, don't worry, we can, it's a, it's a test. So if you're creeping in that bit of information at night, there's an idea that it might make memory consolidation and information processing a little bit less effective. Now, I don't know good data supporting that. Um, and I think the key thing is you find what works for you. One thing though, I think it's important to make the distinction is that um, many people will of course drive the waking day with caffeinated drinks, high sugar drinks, and then they'll be completely wired and then they'll need to try and get some sleep at night. Um, and they often reverse that with sleeping tablets and alcohol. Now, um, these do not provide a biological mimic for sleep. They are sedatives and they can actually impair some of the important things going on within the brain. So alcohol in particular can reduce memory consolidation and the processing of information. Um, and certainly, um, you know, uh, the Z drugs um, are not recommended for um, the elderly because it can cause deep daytime sleepiness and indeed it can increase cognitive impairment. So I think short-term use of sedatives can be useful, um, but long-term it's really something to avoid at all costs. I'm going to put out a personal anecdote and try to understand because uh, like, I expand because I'm, I'm sure a lot of people go through the same thing. What if the situation is where two partners, like, you know, people living in the same household under the same roof, have different circadian rhythm clocks, yep. where one yep. is up all night and the other one <laughs> sleeps super early. So the yep. so if the light's on all night for years and years, does that affect? Yeah. Oh, well, I, I, I was speaking about this last year at a, at a big at a big festival. And uh, and I, I talk about it again in the book because there's no shame in sleeping apart. Um, and it's often within the context of, you're right, people with fundamentally different chronotypes, um, but also one of the great problems is snoring. Um, one partner may snore. Um, and as long as it's not obstructive sleep apnea, um, uh, and you need to check on that, uh, I think it's perfectly fine for you to sleep in separate rooms if you have avail if, if it's available. Uh, it's not a reflection of a, of a failure of a relationship. It's actually, it can be the beginning of a new relationship because you'll get better sleep. You'll be more empathetic. You'll be less um, uh, 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 sort of irritable. You'll be less anxious because you've had that good sleep and you can turn it into a fun thing. So, you know, who's going to bring the tea in in the morning? Um, and um, so I, I don't think if you have the ability to sleep in separate rooms, it, you shouldn't worry about it. Um, but I know many elderly couples when you say this, oh, no, no, I've slept with him for 40 years or 50 years or whatever. We can't separate now. Well, it's 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 no stigma. It's no reflection upon the quality of a relationship. It's a pragmatic solution. Of course, for hundreds of years, rich people, aristocrats uh, all over the world um, sleep separately. Um, and indeed, in some societies such as Japan, uh, where males and females often sleep uh, in separate rooms. Where can people find your work? What is something that like, you know, they should keep an eye out, especially like, you know, OK, this is exciting and you guys should like look for this online. Yeah. 
So I'm the director of the Sleep and Circadian Neuroscience Institute here in Oxford. And you can just do a, a search for that uh, SCNI uh, Oxford or Russell Foster Oxford, and you'll find those websites. Um, what I've, as, 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 as I've mentioned, I published uh, a paperback last year and the hardback the previous year, Lifetime, um, which is available. It was actually, it was exciting. It was a bestseller, both in hardback and paperback. And the key thing about the book for me is that it presents the science in an accessible way so that individuals can make informed decisions. It doesn't say you must do this and you must do that. It's okay, this is the sort of science, you make your own choice. And what I've, what I've done in that book is also provide um, references. So it sounds terrible, but there are 920 references to, to scientific papers. And I thought my publisher Penguin would be horrified by this because this is a popular science book. But what's happened is people have come up to me and said, wow, that was so good because I told my husband about what time you should take your antihypertensives or or this or that. Um, and, they, and he said, oh, I don't believe it. And she said, well, go to the reference. And because these, these references are now because there's open, open science, you can get most of these scientific papers online, then you can actually check the quality of the data for yourself. And I think that's so important because then people can be empowered to look at the science for themselves and again, make their own decisions. And so, so there are two arms of what we do. There's the, there's the website uh, discussing all the work that's going on within our group. And it's quite extensive now, all the way from fundamental biology through to um, working with um, developing, for example, fully online um, uh, 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 sleep medicine, uh, master's degree in diplomas for healthcare professionals to get this information that they were never taught about during their training, uh, all the way through to sort of, as I say, popular science um, and, and books. Well, thank you so much for coming on. And I will put the links for your website and then where people can buy your book on the show notes. Thank you so much, Nia. It's been an absolute delight talking to you. Thank you.